0: On August 20, 1989, Jose and Kitty Menendez were shot to death in their Beverly Hills home. Nearly seven years, three trials, and thousands of hours of TV coverage later, their sons, Lyle and Eric Menendez, were found guilty of their murders and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. On today's episode... I'll be talking to psychologist Dr. Ildiko Tabori about her recent evaluation of the case, the many twists and turns introduced throughout, and how my background in criminal justice gives me a different perspective on the verdict. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. I know that you have had some involvement with the the media around the Menendez brothers and so I wanted to talk to you about your views on the case and I thought it'd be really interesting from my perspective as ex-law enforcement and obviously that upbringing your perspective from a psychologist. Psychologist's point of view and your involvement. So first of all, can you say what your involvement has been? Because I've actually watched a documentary today that you were in and how you got involved uh, and then we'll go from there.
1: It was just a, a odd fluke that I got involved with um, the Menendez Brothers, Eric Tells All documentary. Their original psychology expert ended up having emergency surgery and I got a call. Can you step in and do this? And I said, sure, no problem. Can you do this in two days? Sure. No problem. And so for the next two days, next 48 hours, I just did a deep dive into the the Menendez brothers. I had not thought about the Menendez brothers since the mid nineties when the case was actually going on. And I followed what the media followed back in the 1990s um, and how horrendous the media was. Jumped forward 20 plus years and obviously went to grad school, got my doctorate, learned a lot about, you know, crime criminal psychology, and forensic psychology, and trauma, and sexual abuse, and physical abuse, and how that impacts the person. And my views from the 1990s, thankfully changed drastically, drastically changed.
0: And it's interesting because obviously, as you know, and the listeners know, I have a background in sexual um, abuse victim. I was a child protection officer for seven years. And we dealt with everything from neglect to murder. And child murder is something that no one wants to be any part of. And parents being murdered by children is, you know, something that we don't see thankfully that often. And I have obviously, I am a very empathetic character nature. I'm a nurturer, and I'm very sympathetic. And I. I think that I deal with victims in a way that not many police officers do, and I'm kind of proud of that. And you should be. Yeah. But when I look at a case like this, my probably my police brain, my background comes into play, and I'm like, well, there's a murder happened, a very, very brutal murder also. There's two people that have been found guilty and have admitted it. Not that that's the end of the story, but just it seems that the focus from obviously talking to you and watching the documentary, and I listened to you on a podcast also yesterday, it's like we've now focusing on the cause of why they murdered. Should they be allowed out of prison? Because we're looking at why they did it. And, and I hate to use the word, it's a cut and dry case, because in a police evidential point of view it is because you know it doesn't matter and I say that and we'll discuss this it doesn't matter why they did it they murdered two people and nothing allows for that in society there's no reason that that should happen but there are mitigating circumstances in every in Say on so every, many
1: levels in this case.
0: So many levels. But does that mean that they should come out of prison because they have mitigating circumstances when they have been found guilty and no parole possible at the time that they were found guilty? And I did, obviously it was a case that I was aware of and we have discussed in detail, but when I was even watching documentaries today, there's certain things that I, was, I didn't think were necessarily correct, and obviously, other people involved in the case are saying this is why that's the reason. Um, So, I'm basically saying they were found guilty. You know, we we still have a death penalty. They didn't get the death penalty. Certain states have certain death states. Yeah, sorry, that's a generalization, and certainly not from England. See, I feel so at home in America. So, you know, if they had had that death penalty, which they didn't because we're in California. Well, they,
1: they were up for the death penalty. Right, and okay. so in
0: the penalty phase,
1: um, the jurors chose to give them life without as opposed to the death penalty.
0: They were lucky in some respects, if you want to look at it like that. But if they'd had the, the death penalty, would we still be talking about this right now? Or is it the fact that somebody somewhere has said that they should now come out of prison? Yet the at the time of the court case... These circumstances around their abuse came really into play.
1: Well, in the first case, they did. In the first trial, I should say, their abuse history did come into play. Both the jury, so Eric and Lyle had, it was one trial, but they had two separate juries. And both juries came back hung.
0: And that's the first time that, that I was tried. the first
1: time, and, and that's when the the sexual abuse was admitted in in as evidentiary.
0: Right. So I don't understand, and maybe it's just my lack of understanding of the American system, how co accused would ever be tried separately, because normally a co accused are tried together. No, not always.
1: Okay. Yeah, if you look back on the Hillside Strangler case, um, the cousins whatever their names were, I don't remember, um, were tried separately.
0: Do you know why that is? Why, what, how, what's the qualification to
1: allow that to happen? I would have to defer to an attorney on that one. Yeah. I, I don't understand the legalities of it. I understand as it's being told to me, right. but I don't understand why that happened. And it was, it, it's an oddity that there is, there are two jurors for co-accused, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I I and I don't know the precedence for that. Um, and I don't know how often that has occurred, especially here in California, because I am not an attorney. Um, but I, I think that might be an interesting question for an attorney, right? Yeah. Okay,
0: that could that could be a, a yeah. different show. But yeah. Um so just um can you just explain briefly the circumstances of the of the crime as you knew it as a member of the public, seeing and hearing about it for the first time, not as you now obviously are very very knowledgeable about what happened um what can you remember when it happened yes i remember it
1: i remembered when it happened So I actually, here's a caveat. I knew Eric Menendez in high school. And when I say knew him, I'm using air quotations because he went to Beverly Hills High School. He's my age, um, graduated the same year of high school that I did. And I had friends who went to Beverly Hills High School. So I had seen him around less than a handful of times. And I just remember, oh, That's a cute boy. And then that was it. Right. Didn't think about it again until their arrest. So let's go into the circumstances of the case. Okay. August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty Menendez are gunned down. The parents. The parents. The boys call 911. Lyle and Eric call 911 saying that somebody had killed their parents. The police come. They investigate. They take the... The kids down to the police station, they're very upset and they start their investigation. The boys go home for six months, seven, eight months, perhaps they are now free. They have inherited all this money and they go on these wild spending Sprees because that's what eighteen and twenty-one year old boys do who don't have an understanding of money and money has grown on trees for them, um, and then in the process of all of this, about two months in, two months after the murders occur, Eric Menendez goes into his psychologist and confesses. His psychologist, Dr. Jerome O'Ziel, starts recording his therapy sessions. And even at one point, Lyle comes in to the therapy sessions. At the same time, Dr. Ozeal's patient slash girlfriend, I should say patient slash mistress, is sitting in the waiting room, listening in to Eric and Lyle Menendez in the office. And that relationship implodes The The, girlfriend, the the mistress, girlfriend, slash patient, and Dr. Ozeal. That relationship implodes sometime after he moves her in with his wife and children for three months. And she gets upset and goes to the police and says, hey, I have your unsolved crime. And then that's what gets the police going on, these boys. So in March of 1990, they get
0: arrested. So let's go back a little bit. So the the crime happens. They are initially taken to the police station, I'm assuming. That not as suspects. Not as suspects. They didn't even uh, check the GSR on their hands. So, so they were never treated as suspects right at the beginning. Correct. What was the feel within, you know, the community for them at that time? with like was it a sympathy they've lost their parents what what was the feel uh,
1: it wasn't really on anybody's radar at that time i mean we hear we heard about it in 1989 summer of 1989 right before i'm starting college i hear about this murder in beverly hills now there's not murders in beverly hills very often right and it's a very brutal murder it came and went in passing right Until
0: seven months later in March
1: of 1990.
0: Okay. So you've kind of all, as I I say, all the community's moved on. The news has moved on. The media haven't turned it into anything at that particular time. Not that I recall. Right. Okay. And then it comes back into the forefront because suddenly they're arrested. Yes. Okay. So they're arrested and everybody's now talking about it because they're brothers and it's their parents and they and it was a particularly brutal murder. I mean, they used um these big shot shotguns guns, and you
1: can talk about that. I don't know how these work. Um but at one point Lyle
0: actually has to go outside and reload. I mean, they're like I mean, it was it was nasty and messy and there's a crime scene, so it kind of feels weird that Things weren't done to know that they were suspects at that point. They're at the scene. Um, I'd be interested to know how long the death, you know, they were killed to when the kids actually rang it in to report it, because I believe that they disappeared in between killing them. So what Eric says is that the murders
1: happen. He sits down on... I don't know, the stairs, the landing on the stairs in the house, and they sit and wait because they're expecting the police to show up because it's Beverly Hills and it's quiet. Nothing happens in Beverly Hills like that.
0: And there's a lot of noise with the guns they were using. Sure. And
1: the police don't come. And so then they go and try to get an alibi saying that they were at the movies in Westwood. And then they go and get rid of the guns haphazardly up on Mulholland Drive, and they just kind of shove it under some bushes because they didn't have shovels to bury these guns. And then they go home, and then that's when the 911 call is made.
0: So from a psychologist point of view rather than a police point of view, so in me, everything is saying in me, this is a premeditated murder, and we'll look at the reasons why that potentially is a premeditated murder. and Well, that's what they were convicted of. Right. So murder special circumstance. Right. So then they leave the scene and then do things that will potentially save them should the police arrive, i.e., let's try and buy a movie ticket, but then the movie started too late, so they couldn't do that. So there was a lot of conversation. There's a lot of now thought into how do we get out of this. Yes haphazardly doing the the guns I'm thinking you know there's there's yes haphazardly, but they're still making a conscious effort of trying to not be found guilty
1: sort of or not I don't think that they were going I'm not I don't want to be found guilty but hey there is conversation amongst them which they' acknowledge can you be okay telling the police that we were at the movies or whatever okay but that wasn't the original intent, right? If you look at it from this perspective, it does sound like evil boys kill their sweet parents. Right. So not true. uh,
0: Again, not thinking, you know, the sweet parent bit, although everyone is at this point because the reality.
1: Not really, because Jose Menendez had a horrible reputation a very, very horrible reputation um, for for many years. He worked at RCA, then Carol Co., and Live Entertainment. And he was a CEO of these organizations, and
0: people were afraid of him. Okay, right. So that's a different thing that we'll, we'll discuss. But it, from what I understand, and I may be wrong, the the appearance of the family was very, very important to them. Correct. You know, we're now in Beverly Hills. We live, uh, the kids are at, at Beverly Hills High School. They're playing tennis. They have a coach. To the outside world, they look like a perfect family. And he tr- he clearly tries very hard, the father, to keep that image to the rest of the world, whatever's going well, on both inside. both the parents did. Both yes. the parents, yeah.
1: Yes. And, and the kids were following suit because that's what they had been trained to do. Right. Right. Right.
0: So... For me, I'm like, well, you know what, if they'd have killed... And I've worked in domestic violence, as you know, and I've been sadly part of investigations where a person has snapped. It's been one punch too far and a knife's come out and they've stabbed someone to death and, and they've sat there and gone, shit, I, that should never have happened. And they've literally taken the consequence. I'm not saying everyone because I also believe that people behave very differently depending on a crime no one should be stereotyped for a crime that they've been victim to but in this case I'm I feel like okay well they didn't kill their parents and they say that they were in fear of being killed and there's several instances that they relay saying we think that we have we were going to be killed and there's a boat going on a boat which to me again seems very far-fetched that they are now saying that they thought they were going to be killed but off of the boat.
1: Nina, when you're suffering from PTSD and or what we now understand is complex PTSD, CPTSD, your fears are very irrational right You, you get this heightened paranoia um, and these boys were suffering from from CPTSD. So yeah, I mean it, it, to the outside world, sure to an untrained eye sure but when you look at what was underneath it it is horrifying what these these menendez brothers were put through
0: and the horrifying part that you're talking about is that something that cuz again i work with evidence right is there's a there's a part of me that says a lot of this stuff about how horrendous everything was for them all came out afterwards it wasn't something that people, yeah, they didn't like the dad, and he was ruthless in business. People didn't like him, and, you know, that doesn't make anyone a, a perpetrator of anything. It just means that they're not a nice person. But all of this came out afterwards during a, a, their possibility of def, defense or mitigation, right? Is there anyone, and I don't know because I don't know the case inside out, But and you may not know the answer, but is there any evidence that corroborates what these boys are now saying, having having been caught. So and I say the word caught. Um, well, they admitted it.
1: Um they admitted it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There is evidence that supports their their contention that they were abused and that they have been abused. So way back in 1976, Lyle Menendez told a cousin that he was being abused by his father. This is 1976, which would make him, what, 10 years old or however, maybe less than 10 years old. And the cousin goes and tells Kitty Menendez, the mom, and Kitty says, Lyle's lying, and then Lyle gets in trouble, and that was the last the boys talked about it. There is new evidence that's surfacing now that one of the members, the young members of Menudo during the 1980s, when Jose Menendez was the CEO of RCA and was signing bands like Duran Duran, like Menudo, members of Menudo had been at the house a lot, apparently. And And they were a young boy band. A young boy band through the 1980s. um, And... In order to be a member of Menudo, you had to be between the ages of 12 and 15. Once you hit 16, they cycled you out and brought in another kid. And so over the years, there were something like 30 members of Menudo. But this one kid. Including Ricky Martin. Including Ricky Martin. But this other man, Roy Rosello, I believe, is now saying that Jose Menendez molested him, drugged. And molested him.
0: And that's what the new documentary series is about? Yes, there's a new documentary on Peacock uh,
1: that's being released on May 2nd, or by the time this airs, has been released on Peacock called Menendez and Menudo, Boys Betrayed.
0: So again... The cynical cop in me says, well, why now? Why is this information only available now? And we won't know probably until we watch the documentary. Um, and that, again, it corroborates that the guy was a bad guy. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't give reason for the, the kids to go and brutally, brutally kill someone. Overkill. Overkill.
1: There, there is no justification for murder in that sense. But- did their experience explain why they killed their parents? One hundred percent.
0: If you believe that, that's what really happened. I believe that that's what happened, and and a lot of people do. And I'm I, again, I'm I don't have, I don't know the evidence enough for me to make a, a decision because I work on the evidence. And as I say, you you know the case way way better than I, I ever will. I'm learning the case, trust me. I've watched so much videos today. You're very good in the documentary, by the way. Thank you. So, you know, their, their defense at the time is that they were starting to feel the heat and that Eric had told Lyle that what dad had done. Yeah, about five days before, yeah, um, the the actual
1: murder. That was the first time that Eric had shared that this was happening. So. Lyle had been molested. Eric had been molested. Neither of the boys knew that the other had been. Now, if you go back though in time, Lyle had molested Eric when they were very, very young.
0: Right. Briefly, Which is a very common cycle of abuse that a victim, again, using that term loosely, becomes an offender. And because they don't, Know any different, right? Especially when the
1: victim—I mean, they were less than ten years old when that was occurring—and that's
0: normal behavior. This is what daddy does to me, so I'm going to now do it to you. And and I absolutely understand that circle of abuse, and that's why it has to be broken as a as a circle because it just continues but where do you draw the line of the fact that you need help and are a victim yourself? So I do understand that, and that's probably why in a case like this, I still find that the actual circumstances around the deaths are a little bit, for me, not in that kind of circle of, and I sound terrible, normal behavior of someone because there was so much... The week before, the talking about it, the discussing, it wasn't a I've snapped moment in my eyes. Um, Eric talks about his parents going into the room at late. They've had a big argument and they've had several arguments. And Eric, the night before, has put the gun at the door when he says his dad was trying to get into the room and he'd made a decision that that was the last time his dad was going to get into his bedroom. And when he couldn't get in, dad went away. But then the next day it became a a boiling pot. And he then says that mum and dad go and I may have got this wrong, but mum and dad go into a room and shut the door. And it's at that point that he thinks they're going to now kill us. Now, and I did a piece the other day about, you know, what becomes a threat, what's a real threat and what's a perceived threat. And it's very difficult unless you're in those person's shoes. And it's what that person feels. It doesn't say, and I may have missed that, why he thought at that point, other than dad was annoyed and angry and pissed off. But dad's been annoyed and angry and pissed off before, even though he obviously now knows that they've discussed it.
1: Yes, that is true. But you're also forgetting that there's a whole mental health issue that's that's occurring. And when you know, when you talk about snapping like that, you don't just are walking around normally. And then all of a sudden you snap and then everything goes awry. There's, there's typically a boiling point and things are simmering and simmering and simmering and simmering. Now, remember this week, leading up to the murder. So Lyle had been gone. Lyle had been off at college. He was at Princeton. He was doing his thing at Princeton. He wasn't around the family. And so Eric is carrying this burden and he's going off to college. He was starting college in a couple of weeks at UCLA. And he's thinking he's going to be living in the dorm. And now he's escaping the parents, just like Lyle had. And then Jose Menendez comes in and says, no, you're going to spend most of your nights here at right. home. And he's panicking now. That was the breaking point. And then it starts to bubble up and boil. He's been thinking, I'm going to get away just like my brother has gotten away. Now I can't because I'm going to UCLA and UCLA is right next door to Beverly Hills. Right.
0: Right. Right. Why, why did, as he said anywhere? why he thought at that moment, because mom and dad walk away, they go into another room and they close the door. So it's not, he's not facing them and he's like, they're going to now kill me. Um, does he ever say why it's that particular moment that he goes and organizes getting the gun and...
1: No, he didn't, they didn't do that at that time. Um, he just all of a sudden is... Saying, no, I'm never going to be able to get away from my father. And that's what he's thinking. And now he's suicidal. Right. And then the next day or two days later, that's when he witnesses an argument between Kitty and Lyle. Yeah. Where she rips off right. his toupee. And for years... He, had, he did not know that Lyle had been wearing a toupee. He started losing his hair at like 14 or 15, right? And that's when the conversation began between the brothers about this is what dad is doing to me. And Lyle, being the protective older brother, going, I didn't protect you. I'm going to talk to them. Let me protect you, little brother. The talk of the guns didn't occur until a few days later, when they just take a day trip down to San Diego to get away from the parents. And they go in to buy the guns for self-defense. They don't know anything about guns. And they go into a sporting goods store. And the guy was like, well, here, have a gun or have a shotgun, because that's going to protect you as opposed to a handgun. I don't know why that is, I will defer to you on that one. And it wasn't about let's murder our parents. It's about let's have some self-protection. Many police officers, I was married to one who used to sleep with a gun on the nightstand to protect us from somebody breaking in. I'm sure you might've done that too. right? Many people do.
0: So, you know, it, 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 that's what it is. But how do we know that it wasn't, let's go to San Diego and drive down there and plan the murder of our parents. And we we don't know, we weren't in that car, but there's, you know, they then go get guns that they're not used to. And they're not used to guns, that's, that's a fact. Um, and then they buy guns and then it's all a planned event because there's money involved.
1: I'm going to disagree with you on that.
0: Okay. You
1: don't overkill somebody because... You want their money.
0: No, you shoot him dead one time, maybe, but you don't bludgeon. Okay, but there's also a point where they talk about this, you know, when it first happened, was this a kind of mob killing? It looked mob killing. It's full on. Dad's not a nice person. He's in entertainment. You know, there could be a lot of kind of skeletons in his cupboard. That could also be a, have been a planned Motive. It, it it could have been, but you
1: said something, and they they did not plan this very well. in In the brief time that they did plan it, it wasn't planned very well. Because you even said it the other day, where if it were a mob killing, it wouldn't have been this messy. Right.
0: Right. You just hopefully just put one bullet and get out of there. But that was obviously. I mean, we've spoken about the police. The Beverly Hills police have not, not dealt with this particularly. So that became the theory that that was what it was. It's been very interesting discussing the intricacies of the case with Ildico, given our different professional backgrounds. Join me next week as we continue the discussion on the Menendez brothers' trial, including the controversial evidence that was introduced by their psychiatrist and the life of abuse that became the motive for the murder of their parents. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren.